Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another Top 10 Debate. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by one of the Dadly Boys, Michael Hamflet from What Culture, to talk about things we didn't know about WWE in 2018. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, where we review Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AW Dynamite, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week, complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Michael Hamlet to discuss his list. 10 things you didn't know about WWE in 2018. And I have to admit, Hamlet, reading through this, 2018 feels a lot more than three years ago. Oh, absolutely. Um, we've said on a multitude of podcasts just how fast wrestling moves now. Um, faster than ever. It's only ever getting faster. And yeah, when I was writing this list, I felt the exact same way. There have been changes to the landscape of the scene in North America alone, let alone elsewhere, you know, in New Japan, in the UK, everywhere. Um, that just dates so much of this content, or if not dates it, timestamps it, I think, from a very particular period, shortly before and during WWE became the version of itself today. Mm. Um, 2018, if I'm not mistaken, if it wasn't that, it was definitely 2019, was the year that we had first heard that damning statistic that as the TV rights fees kicked in, um, consumer spending would account for less than 50% of WWE's overall income. And that was quite a turning point when the tickets and the T-shirts and all that sort of stuff no longer accounts for half of your earnings, then you'd no longer need to account for all of your audience in the way that you used to. And I feel like in the last two and a half years, we've seen the ultimate upshot of that in WWE, in most of WWE's output, not all, most of its output. And I think that's why 2018 stands up quite well as a pretty good year for WWE's like outward facing product. Not all of it was perfect. It almost never is. Um, but it's a year I hold, like I hold memories of 2018 quite fondly for the, the good stuff mm. rather than diving deeper into some of the bad of which, some of which we will absolutely get to here. Yeah, I can't, so is it three years since Evolution? Yeah, three years. <laughs> All the times they could have done another one after, anyway. Mm. We're not against that just yet. Uh, but one of the big things that happened, of course, in 2018 was the return of Dean Ambrose. An epic moment on Monday Night Raw. I still remember discussing it with you boys in the office and probably on podcasts. Um, but, I mean, John Moxley himself, and when you look back on it, he's kind of justified 
isn't best pleased with how it happened. And once again, it's Vince McMahon meddling. You know, you, you can debate this on many people's returns. Should they say the person's name before they come out? Should they hint at the person before they come out? Or should they just hit the music and let the fans work it out for themselves? I suppose this was a combination of, of several things here. Yeah, and as like Moxley pointed out, it was kind of to the detriment of what he was hoping for. As you pointed out there, there's numerous ways to do this kind of return. When they have announced the name, the idea would be that you're trying to sell a pay-per-view or draw a rating. So it's less about the surprise of their return, more about the emotional response to it. So uh, again, let's pretend that we're still in 2018 and this is crowds and not a pandemic. You're going to watch the show if you're watching at home. You're going to buzz about it in the arena. And then when that music hits or when that wrestler comes out, because you know it's happening, you get to unleash all that emotion that you've been bottling up, looking forward to actually seeing this person. When it's a surprise, you want to milk that surprise pop as best as you possibly can. That music hitting, if it's famous and if it's known, and obviously Dean Ambrose music was well known, that would get that kind of guttural, visceral reaction from fans that didn't know to expect him coming to the building. What this made me think of reading back on this side, I found a quote from Moxley's now famous interview mm. with Chris Jericho um, ahead of his uh, AW debut, where he lambasted WWE creative, but in a way that was like almost quite dignified and almost sort of yeah. respectful rather than passive aggressive. He was just being honest about what he believed with a certain failings of that company in terms of his character. And it reminded me of something that I know for a fact we celebrated on podcasts, which was the Chronicle special on his comeback and watching his personal and professional suffering through being injured and through being away from the thing that he loved the most, or at least at the time, the thing that he maybe believed he loved the most. He was rehabbing and getting back to this was fighting to get something back that he knew was missing in his life, which was wrestling. Mm. And all of that, all of that energy was fed into this one moment where looking angrier, looking jacked, looking scary, he could return as Dean Ambrose, but the edgier Dean Ambrose that had basically isolated himself in all those months when he was rehabbing. And he gets there and he gets to Gorilla and you can only imagine the kinetic energy that's built up inside it. You know what? You don't need to imagine it. You were there in person. You've seen it being exercised at Double or Nothing 2019. Yeah. Picture the picture the energy he had for that moment. It was almost certainly building and building and building and building in Gorilla, just waiting for somebody to say, go, so we can storm through that curtain and be Dean Ambrose. And instead, he has to stand there and it's building and it's building and it's building. And Seth Rollins says the words to Dolph Ziggler, if you've got a Scottish psychopath in your corner, I'm going to have a lunatic in mine. And the pop happens there because the fans know what they're getting. And then the music hits leather jacket, leather jacket, jeans. And then the, a second pop happens there. And then Dean Ambrose appears from behind the curtain and a third pop happens there. And there's no chance of that third pop being as energetic as the second or the first, which mm. is all that he wanted, which was all that that like Chronicle was documenting, all that he built up to get him back. And he probably felt by the time the first segment was over, he's like, ah, oh, and it's gone. Cool. <laughs> like all of all of the frustration he was feeling before the injury was almost immediately back. And the last vestiges of it were in the turn on Seth Rollins, which of course happened later in 2018. And that was gone a week later too. That was gone within one gas mask segment, within one dreadful pay-per-view match. Like every time he tried to force that feeling back into his body, it wasn't let out through this scream, this primal rage. It was let out like a balloon. 
gently releasing the air bit by bit by bit by bit. That's how you force one of the best wrestlers in the world to leave your company and go and work for the opposition. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really disappointing when you look back on all that. And like you say, probably that coupled with the getting an injection and shooting on his best mate's genuine illness <laughs> help that as. Um, so I'm sure everyone has a lot of regrets. And speaking of regrets, let's talk about Crown Jewel, shall we? Oh, what a year it was, 2018. I don't, I, I still feel like for all that we started this podcast by saying, oh, Crown Jewel was years ago, uh, 2018 was years ago. This, I can't believe it's a different time now. Um, nothing makes me feel more 2021 than thinking about Crown Jewel 2018, hmm. because if Greatest Royal Rumble was the entryway into the content era of WWE, which is to say producing a show not for an audience, but for massively wealthy paymasters, in one case, networks, in another case, Saudi Arabian crown princes. Crown Jewel was almost a celebration of the ugliness of the content era. Nobody needs a reminder of this, um, but the show was going ahead in the shadow of Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of coverage still exists out there that like I personally, and I know you will be too, very proud of whatculture.com. It's all there on YouTube if you want to go looking for it. Like Proud of how we dealt with that situation. Not mm-hmm. at all proud with how WWE dealt with that situation. They basically um, buried their heads from the bad press. They were forced every now and then to put themselves in front of news cameras, but the gist of it was, um, look, we've got a paying customer and we want to do what we can for the fans and there's huge demand for our product over there. It's not about politics. It's about putting smiles on faces and all that garbage. Mm. The show went ahead because they wanted to preserve the integrity of a 10-year deal and all the money that they were going to make from it. The dirty, filthy, blood-soaked money they were going to make for 10 years. And that's why Crown Jewel happened. So it was with a certain karmic joy (laughs) that that the main event collapsed in the way it did. Because of all the people to be front-facing for the worst version of the WWE product, the product that we were told was there to put smiles on faces, the product that we were told was there to do away with the politics and the socioeconomic strife of, you know, various Saudi Arabian human rights sort of floutings and whatnot was going to be this one between the return of a legend and three other sort of icons, pillars of this organisation getting to show themselves tonight. And as WWE's integrity crumbled, so too did these pillars. In fact, so did three of them, because the one guy that hadn't wrestled in eight years was about the only one keeping it together. Uh, <laughs> the Undertaker himself, as evidence on the on his documentary, deeply regretted it. He was still there chasing that one last great match, and he just hoped with his friends that he would have it. He didn't. Triple H was injured within five minutes, and let's be honest, he was expected to be the general of this thing. And he leans over to Sean and says, I've just torn my peck about five minutes in. And so I was like, oh, I guess it falls on my shoulders then. Because what was on Kane's shoulders? A mask and wig that was too loose in the heat and fell off. So, <laughs> like, this this cartoonish BBC sitcom Last of the Summer Wine brought to WWE thing... Um, manifested in almost like a celebration of WWE's ugliness to the point that Shawn Michaels, which was the kind of, to bury this match, I'll take any opportunity, but to talk about the the entry in the list specifically was it took Shawn Michaels a long time to admit just how much he regretted this. Um, I think we all remember that interview. It was against like a blue background that he did immediately after the match for Mm -hmm. WWE.com. I think it was on YouTube. And like he dodges every question about the quality of the match. He's just like, yeah, it sure was uh, something to be out there again. It was... uh, 
Ooh, forgot how tired I got doing that. Like he doesn't want to pass any comment on what he's just been a part of because he knows he knows it's been a total disaster. And he's just thinking, three million dollars, three million dollars. As soon as I get home, three million dollars. What am I going to buy my wife and kids with that money? Three million dollars. Like that's the motivation for him. But he said years later, quote. Um, after watching The Undertaker's uh, documentary, quote, I had no idea that from Undertaker's standpoint, he was looking at this, that it might be the one that he could walk away on. That's something when I think to myself now, oh my goodness, I wish I'd known that. For me, it was just a chance to be with my buddies. All I can do is apologise to the guys. Yeah, yeah, like, fair play. You can tell that man's found religion because he's obviously done a lot of soul searching to come up with that. Can you imagine that, that bit where he's trying to blow the hair out of his face and he's thinking, yep, this is the one we go out on our shield on. That's it. <laughs> That infamous shot of Michaels and Triple H sitting in the corner and Michaels are sort of smirking over to him going, what a load of bollocks this is. I'm just looking at this crown jewel card as well. I forgot what... By the way, quick maths. The four preceding matches, that being a semi-final match for the World Cup, the WWE Championship match, the Universal Championship match, and the World Cup final match, same length of time as the main event. Main, main event yeah, is 28 minutes. 15 of that is like Kane setting up a choke slam. That's a <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Works at a desk all day. We know what a sedentary lifestyle is like for your fitness. And I will never, ever, ever forget. I think it was me and Cleary doing the stream, possibly. Maybe me, Cleary and Phil, to be fair. Well, certainly me, Cleary and Phil did a preview and predictions and stuff. And we're like, well... It's tough to call. Who's going to win this? Who's going to win this big trophy? Maybe it's going to be Mysterio. Maybe it's going to be The Miz. Maybe it's going to be Kurt Angle or Dolph Ziggler or Seth Rollins. It's a shame, man. Wasn't even in the tournament. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't going to be uh, John Cena either, was it? Who looked at the PR and said, you know, I'm not going to do that show. Take me out of the tournament, please. And they did. <laughs> Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's move on and talk about something good from 2018 we alluded to it earlier evolution why on earth haven't they done it again and tell us all about becky lynch and charlotte flair setting records at that epic show i mean the fact they haven't done it again means that they can't yet taint it with a poor sequel um i will say that like that's obviously not the reason why they haven't evolution was probably end to end somebody will correct me in the twitter replies no doubt but but for, for my memories, at least, end-to-end, the best pay-per-view of the 2010s, 
main roster, WWE, all those caveats. Um, NXT takeovers might have been better. You might have preferred an AEW show. But in terms of WWE's main roster output, I can't think of a better end-to-end pay-per-view than Evolution. The crowd was white hot. The time, so the time was right for WWE because, of course, they were about to promote Crown Jewel and women couldn't even appear on that show. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very nicely marrying up with the fact that, oh, well, we've got an all men's thing. What are we going to do to try and counter the bad PR? However, the timing was right from a roster point of view as well. It was such a goddamn diverse and packed show that made just about perfect use of everybody. I say just about because Sasha and Bailey were done a little bit dirty in a six woman, but that six woman against the right squad was class. Like yeah. them and Natalia teaming up to beat the right squad was really, really, had no right to be as good as it was. Um, total banger of a card, no duffers whatsoever. Dark, um, memory the dark match was. I didn't realize this. I want to say I've not got the wiki. Was it Tony Storm and Rhea Ripley? It was. It was Tony Storm was wrestling Io Shirai on the card. It was oh, just, oh. just just we'll just hoy Rhea Ripley and Dakota Kai out there. That was yeah. it. Dakota Kai and Rhea Ripley yeah. probably have quite a good match. Those two weren't they? <laughs> UK Championship or something was it? Yeah, exactly. Like you could, yeah, um, I like absolutely brilliant. Um, like Lita and Trish working the opener was inspired because the crowd were red hot for them. The match was good, but it was very much like a Legends Tour thing and it didn't want to like get in the way of the stuff later on. The, the Battle Royal was amazing because it was basically like an apology for that Kid Rock abomination at WrestleMania 25. <laughs> like the women all got individual full entrances and got to work all their own individual spots. Everybody got over. Yeah, just an awesome, awesome night in front of it. Like just a like a white hot buzzing crowd. And Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair, one of the best matches of the year. You've got Becky Lynch, like this is the genesis of the man character. So she, mm. there's that feeling that you can't replicate that when something is hot and it's only getting hotter, there's just magic around everything that persona does. And um, Charlotte Flair is proving herself to be her like perfect rival in this epic chapter of their, obviously they're kind of like their career opponents at this point, aren't they? But this was such a wonderful chapter mm. of their feud because to sort of reset, Becky Lynch had turned on her at SummerSlam won the belt the following month. They'd worked quite a short match with a cheap finish at Super Showdown, so which was in Australia, mm-hmm. if you remember that. So the pressure was kind of on them to have this banger singles match that the man character had, had promised, you know? It was like, wow, this character is super over now. It's time to have a match that kind of like delivers on that. And they went just short of half an hour and nearly killed each other. Um, 28 minutes and 40 seconds remains a record for a women's singles match on a WWE pay-per-view. And that includes, with the exception of last woman standing matches that obviously go go 30 minutes. Um, that includes the likes of Sasha and Bailey at Hell in a Cell 20, Becky Lynch and Sasha Banks at Clash and Hell in a Cell 2019. All these epics that you think about, these two still went longer and not a second felt wasted. They no. beat the living out of each other. Um, Charlotte absolutely made the man as a character here. Like Becky Lynch was totally made as a, as a workhorse, as a fighter, as a brawler. Like every version of the character she needed to be happened here. And what was so brilliant is that it was a perfect way. It was such a perfect way to tee up Becky Lynch for that dream Survivor Series match against Ronda Rousey that was then taken away from us. Oh. So Becky Lynch had all that momentum. And rather than it being stopped by Nia Jax's punch to the eye, it was only enhanced. The thirst needed to be quenched. And it was at that time that you could feel something in the air for the likes of a WrestleMania main event. Talk started there that this character was over enough to headline WrestleMania. And you could just, it almost feels as, I remember like the Royal Rumble comeback where she lost um, to Asuka. And it was in the opener, I think. And it was like, well, Christ, how's she going to, how's she going to get to WrestleMania now? And those signs in the crowd, it was all very much, she doesn't just have to get there. She has to close the show. 
this is like, and this was definitely the moment where that character, I, I don't know what the, the Steve, like I, I probably did an article at the time about the various comparisons to Steve Austin. I would say this was, if, if, if this was Becky, if Becky bleeding in November was Steve Austin bleeding against Bret Hart, this was Becky, this was Austin's first Survivor Series match against the Hitman. This is when you absolutely knew that this guy was for real. Yeah, I did feel just to quickly mention the Royal Rumble. Looking back at the time, I was like, oh my God, yes, yes, Finley, pour in the match. Do feel a bit bad going, yeah, Lana's injured. <laughs> I, I can <laughs> tell you about all that looking back, but uh, yeah, what an incredible story in a road to WrestleMania 35 that was. I just spoke about um, Becky Lynch setting a record there, and let's tell you what, this. Doesn't so just get thrown together this podcast. We're going to stick talking about records and sp- speak about Raw's longest ever match. And I'm trying to cast my mind. I said this before we started recording. In my head, I was doing my usual thing of laying in bed early on a Tuesday morning and watching Raw before I get up and do all the work stuff. I don't remember them even advertising this. Maybe they did say it was going to be a gauntlet, to be fair. They must have done, one would assume. But they certainly didn't say, yeah, it's basically going to be the whole bloody show. It was it was one of those things where I was watching it and going, is he is he? And I'm watching it on double speed, but Seth Rollins has been in there a mighty long time. Yeah, I love how we can both make the safe assumption that something on Raw wasn't promoted beforehand. <laughs> it's a, that's that's something that, that's a tale as old as time, let alone three years at this point. Yeah, the um, the record breaking um, gauntlet match. I was going to say Iron Match, the gauntlet match on Raw. 106 minutes, and to be honest, 106.55, so just shy of 107 minutes. Raw's longest match. That'll obviously never be topped, ever. Um, Cheating a bit, because it's a series of individual matches, but it all was part of one great thing. And what threads the whole thing together, much like you've threaded together this podcast from one entry into another, is the individual record set by Seth Rollins. 65 minutes in that goddamn thing. Uh, The longest, I believe, anybody's ever wrestled on Raw, and that does include Iron Man matches. Um, because obviously they would go an hour, Seth put five on top of that. Um, I tell you what, you can question the patter in the Rollins Lynch household, but you can't question the cardio, can you? Those two <laughs> can go. Um, yeah, I I mixed feelings writing about this match because I thought it was a worthy inclusion. Um, because I do think the nature of WWE's television is that you are left permitted to forget about stuff like this now. I don't think there was once upon a time I don't think they'd let stuff like this go. And mm. um, Chris Jericho talking about beating The Rock and Austin in one night is one that springs to mind. Um, Seth Rollins never stopped to call himself the 65-minute man beyond maybe one week. I think this helped inform the Monday Night Rollins nickname that he got as the year went on. This idea that he was... So, like, we're basically a year out from him defeating Brock Lesnar. And for all the... Well, for all the hideous things that Seth Rollins encountered in a bad 2019... Um, he felt like the guy to do it, didn't he? At WrestleMania yeah. 35, he felt, and I think a lot of that was baked in from 2018, where he just he just worked really hard. Not all of it was entertaining, and I'd be lying to our listeners if I said it was all good. But he did just graft away, and this was an example of that. You don't go over an hour in a match and not like sweat half to death and work your bollocks off for it. The match itself was entertaining in patches because of you know there's going to be great drama when a guy's been in there that long. Uh, it was. Star-studded for the day. Roman Reigns is in it. Braun was in it. Elias at his most over was in it. Finn Balor, still a workhorse, was in it. The Miz, because the Miz gets everywhere, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> John Cena, as was kicking around, as we talked about in another podcast the other day, John Cena's entire modus operandi was just getting to a big match at WrestleMania and he was trying like 80 different <laughs> avenues to do it. I love that. Um, so yeah, like it's 
it's one of them little trivia notes that I'm quite astonished that WWE has already neglected to hmm. bring back up. Rollins comes out every week in a suit. He spent a year calling himself a messiah. And at no point did he say that he once wrestled against the best in the industry for 65 minutes. And I find it strange that they've allowed that to be forgotten. But again, it's we are talking a lot about, we're into the content era now. This is just another week and then on to the next one, you know. Um, but we don't forget. Thanks, Seth. Seth. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who actually even, let me just double check this, who even emerged victorious to that one? They obviously got the title match at chain. Oh, Wait, it was uh, it was Roman, wasn't it? Wait a second, what am I doing here? Oh, it was to build. To, yeah, what am I on about? Yeah, yeah, it was for the elimination chamber build because they were like they all had a big multi. That was it. That was one they went. They went. You know, everyone knows how it works. Elimination chamber, seven people, right? What? <laughs> Four pods and two. Yeah, bollocks. We'll just have three people start because who cares? Um, but yeah, I remember that. That was epic, and I I do remember now. I was thinking, like, what were we doing podcast-wise? That was the days of the Raw recap and the SmackDown synopsis on What Culture Extra RIP. Oh, wow. So um, Colton, if he's listened to this podcast, will remember our thoughts on it from the time. But almost everybody else that subsequently found us, you're going to have to dig, dig, dig so far back into an archive that it might no longer exist if you want to find it. Yeah. Um, I would say check it out wherever you get your podcast, but I'm not even sure that they exist anywhere on the internet. I hope somebody, I would never normally say this, I hope somebody illegally acquired those and put them online somewhere. I kind of hope they didn't because I sense I wasn't as <laughs> relaxed, giddy presenter that I am now. I was probably very nervous. And, uh, my, my, Michael Hamlet, what, what, what did you think? Should Elias have won this? Oh, crap. You'd be, I'd sound like Dana Brooke cutting that promo on uh, Ronda Rousey. <laughs> well, well, Bon, what I, what I thought of Raw. <laughs> Uh, let's conclude with uh, a, a tiny thing you may remember in 2018. <laughs> uh, it, it barely, it almost feel, doesn't feel necessary to mention. It's not really relevant three years later. But um, yeah, the elite almost went to WWE, didn't they? That had been bloody different. Well, the elite, the the elite was what we all still said because All In had changed the world just as the guys had promised it would. Um, all In, which of course we now know was like, basically using and abusing the Ring of Honor for their facilities and people. Bank, bankrolled by Tony Khan, who was already kind of half involved, rather than the, we're going to run a 10,000-seater indie show to win $5 after Dave Meltzer. It's like, well, it's not quite that, is it? I can see, <laughs> like, I can see a leaf growing from that long Pinocchio nose of yours. But yeah, so like All In was, now we know there to be a, a like a soft launch, a backdoor pilot for what became All Elite Wrestling. Great. All great. Um not, not script for Ring of Honor, but uh, you know, like Cody and the books were all in, no pun intended. So it was Kenny Omega, so was everybody that we now know to be involved, Hangman Page as well. Um, WWE evidently did know that, uh, didn't know that, or did, and either way tried to put deals together that would convince people in the process of forming a company to not form a company. <laughs> so on one hand, so we're going to talk about this offer in a second, but on one hand, I like the idea that WWE were completely in the dark to all elite wrestling and they were making an offer thinking that they could be WWE and just slap their proverbials on the table as usual with all their money and say, well, you're going to sign this deal because we're going to make it too good for you not to sign. Mm. On the other hand, I also like the narrative that they did know about the potential formation of AEW and believed that these deals would convince them to change mm -hmm. their mind. Yeah. 
uh, executive vice president. What? We're going to put being the elite on the network. Why would you not want to do that? <laughs> like, I, I love that. I love that arrogance more. Um, yes. So funnily enough, it was quite nice for me this because I went looking for Dave Meltzer's reporting of the deal because um, he went to he- amazing this. He went into massive amounts of detail in the Observer about this deal. I wonder where he got the information from um, <laughs> about like what they were offered and what they turned down. And I found this information through an article on whatculture.com by Michael Hamflit. Hey. So it's quite nice to go back and relive doing the news for this one. Um, I also got, I, I want to give credit to um, it's either Ben Roy Turner or Adam Nicholas for knocking up a lovely thumb that you can actually see in this article oh, of what would, it would be if the AEW guys ended up on the network. It looks, if you imagine what the old network uh, desktop used to look like with the guys on it, it's just tremendous thumb. Um, but yeah, so Meltzer had all the information obviously. Uh, and it was just <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so obviously, Hangman Page, Cody Rose, the Young Bucks were all finishing up with Ring of Honor. That was the last of their deals. New Japan was coming to an end anyway for them in January with Kenny Omega, but it was the last of their deals that they needed to see through. Um, somebody should write a book about all this. It's just like such a fascinating time. And the All In show ultimately changed their value completely. Where they were once about to be ex-Ring of Honor guys that WWE wanted back, all of a sudden, they looked like they could be promoters. That never happened, would it? They looked like they could be promoters. So WWE knew they had to go really, really big. Hangman Page was going to be offered main roster headliner money to work NXT, <laughs> where Triple H obviously wouldn't have protected. Hangman Page would have been over as like their top star, wouldn't he? He would have gotten over straight away as a big... Imagine like Bobby Roode coming over from TNA times a million. Yeah. That would have been Hangman Page coming over from New Japan and Ring of Honor to NXT. Uh, Young Bucks and Cody were going straight to the main roster. Um, Young Bucks are being given, quote, AJ Styles money, mm-hmm. which at this point, AJ Styles is like the long, like been WWE champion for a year. So huge deal, you have to assume. Um, Cody the same, which I love because he's pied them off when they've said, why don't you sign this crap deal? We starred us for five more years and then turned up two years later to get like headliner cash. Like that in itself must have felt great for Cody to turn down. Yeah. Um, being the elite to go on the network in full, like the archives to be lifted off YouTube to go exclusive on the network with no doubt huge residuals coming their way as a result. Mailbox money, as Jim Ross calls it, checks for doing nothing. Um, and my favourite bit, and something that Meltzer, quote, said he'd never heard WWE offer before, a six-month window where, even though they'd signed three-year deals, they could just opt out and leave if they didn't like it. Like, all of this money, all of these perks, three years, and after six months, if you don't like it, you can go. I want to say this again. As much as this screams of WWE not realising that All Elite Wrestling was in the works, isn't it funny to think that they thought it was? And that they could talk them out of it. Like, what if they knew everything? What if they had a, a mole or somebody that was like, oh, there's this guy, Tony Khan. He, uh, he runs Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham in the Premier League. He's got money. Like, this is happening. Mm. This is not like some indie guys trying to make it work. This is ha- like, he's got billions. This is happening. And then they're like, what's like, Paul's going, my dad's billions are bigger than your dad's billions. <laughs> sign, <laughs> sign my contract. It's so funny to think of them, like, being arrogant enough to believe that these deals would get it over the line. And we can all be grateful that they turned it down. Yeah, the only thing that would have been funny if, is if they had gone in for six months and then gone, right, thanks for the money, bye. Uh, and then just <laughs> anyway. I, 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 it's it's insane that I, 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 
they didn't it was it was a version of creative control was hinted at which i suppose was the illusion <laughs> of if you don't like it then you can leave uh, the only other person mm-hmm. i can think of that was offered come we'll pay you loads of money and if you don't like it you can leave whenever you want is adnan Verk. so i, I literally I, I don't know anyone <laughs> else who's had that sort of deal but Honestly, just I can't stop looking at this visual of the elite <laughs> being the elite and the AEW symbol being on the WWE, the old WWE network, which I kind of miss as well. I'm starting to miss that too. I love the idea that like we can change the uh, like like the go-to phrases in like in wrestling like analysis. We can say, "Oh, what kind of contract you got, brothers?" On Verk money. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be like, "Oh, you wanted a Sting deal? You wanted Sting money?" That was just this like turn of phrase for like. 750, 800 WCW, nobody made Sting money until the outsiders came in, um, apart from Hogan. And now it's like uh, nobody comes in WWE on Verk money anymore. Those days no. are over. Those days I, are long gone. I got accused of being, I think, both an NXT shield and an AW shield over the last couple of days, by the way. It's just, I haven't got a dog in this fight, is what I'm trying to say. But it is preposterous to, to consider something like this. And uh, yeah, I, the, I, the only thing, other thing I remember from around this time, maybe was after they tried and failed, like you say, to just throw money at the problem. They went, just try and claim the word elite. Didn't they have like a load of promos for a pay-per-view? And they were like, yep, here we are. It's the elite of wrestling as we know. So... Um... That sounds about... If I'm not mistaken, that, that sounds about right because it's in in my head right around the same time on being the elite. They had Kaz as like this Triple H figure with the sledgehammer trying to get them to sign contracts. So like every now and then you would hear this like grunting man coming in with like, I'm sure the camera like just revealed a little bit of a giant nose or something and like long hair and like, like they were getting letters sent through, you know, like, you know, I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Where like they'd get a letter sent through saying like, what's it going to be? And like, as if all these these guys were going to sign with this mythical character, Paul. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's it's crazy to think that's only three years ago as well. And look at the way the... The landscape of the wrestling industry has changed. But tell us about your memories from 2018 and read the whole article, 10 Things You Didn't Know About WWE in 2018. We haven't even had a chance to talk about Raw 25 or Ronda Rousey or, or of course, the Ultimate Deletion match. And what Vince McMahon thought of it. See if you can guess and see if it (laughs) measured up to what you think. WhatCulture.com, 10 Things You Didn't Know About WWE in 2018. But let us know your thoughts at WhatCultureWWE, of course, on Twitter. Watch there. You can follow both of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at... Michael Hamflet. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all, as I said, at What Culture WWE. Uh, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. But this has been another top 10 debate. My thanks to this article's author, Michael Hamflet. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.